So I want to welcome you to the first of, I think, four events celebrating the sesquicentennial of the birth of Mahatma Gandhi. Um, Professor Gandhi's talk followed in on the 24th, I think, for Professor Ayub, who I've never heard him talk, but I, he might be good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> how long were you at Madison? Quite a, yeah, so, um, so it'll be a pleasure. And then there are two cultural events, a film and a music concert of music that inspired uh, Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, there are information about these things outside. Uh, I do want to thank, I mean, it was an idea at least to bring Professor Gandhi here that was ours, but then uh, Sid Harth uh, um, thought about making this a bigger deal. And then we had help from the Office of Inclusion and Intercultural Initiatives and the, uh, the India Council. So it's Madison, the India Council, the Office of Inclusion and Intercultural Cultural Initiatives and the Asian Studies Center. And I, uh, I think it's a significant thing um, to do uh, to remind ourselves of other sets of political challenges and other models of um, political leadership. My introduction it will be short because in, in many respects Professor Gandhi is a member of our faculty and a friend and we're glad that he and Usha are back. So I have two parts. If you don't know Professor Gandhi, I'm going to say a few things about him uh, quite short because he doesn't really like to be puffed up. And then I want to say something about his contribution to Madison and MSU. So long career, peace activist, academic, politician, now retired from politics, but not from either activism or scholarship. Served in the upper house of the India Parliament. He's been president of the Change Initiatives of Change International, which is a global nonprofit aimed at reconciliation, confidence building, trust building. And he's a research professor at the College of Education, University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. So he's been associated with Illinois' very fine Center for South Asian and Middle Eastern Studies the Indian Institute of Technology at uh, Gandhinagar. Sorry, I'm not a specialist in this. Uh, the Center for Policy Research in New Delhi and at Madison College, Michigan State University. He was a Hannah professor, and we just invited him back just because we like him and Usha. Um, and he's contributed. Um, the initial time at Madison was a course on Indian political thought. Then you came back and gave lectures on Mahatma Gandhi, which, uh, which has become a book. Uh, and uh, then on the, was once a manuscript, now is a published book on uh, South Asian, South Indian history. Um, we skipped a year, but you might have noticed we were a little busy with problems of our own, so that's my fault. Um, you are the grandson of Mahatma Gandhi, but I've always enjoyed the fact that your talks are not about, I don't know, how you used to be on his knee or those things. The one story I do remember you telling is Gandhi complaining that you not only got new glasses, 
you know, new lenses because your eyes had changed, but you'd actually gotten new frames. So that seems to me, a, I'm about to become a grandfather and I can't imagine <laughs> that everything my granddaughter will do would be perfect. Um, so tonight we, we lead off this wonderful set of events with I think a, just a, a, a wonderful person. And I think he's become a part of our college and the larger university because of his perspective. Um, there were supporters of Mrs. Clinton who were unhappy with the outcome of the election and were talking to you and I remember you saying, well, it's time to go to work. It's time to keep doing what one needs to do. There are always people who are unhappy with the outcome of elections. There are things at dinner we were talking about where there's certainly a politics of populism, of nationalism, of, of lack of tolerance that one can talk about in a number of societies. So I think it's especially useful tonight that we turn back to someone who seemed in, in a real way to, if not love his enemies, at least respect them, um, and who had a vision of a multi-religious, multicultural, multi-ethnic kind of uh, society. Uh, so without further ado, I, I want to leave this to the expert and to one of our great faculty members, Raj Gandhi.
प्रदीप for a 1954 movie called Jagruti and the video using the song was probably made in the 1990s now this year for the 150th anniversary of gandhi's birth and his wife kasturba's birth birth many programs have been offered in india what the indian government has chiefly presented is a gandhi who tried to make india physically clean using a broom to make india physically clean uh of course that was a passion of his but there was more to gandhi than that one of india's sharpest cartoonists is unni u n n y who draws for the indian express on december 12 2000 that's 19 years ago uh the indian express carried an unni cartoon showing sudarshan then the chief of the rss as a school teacher sudarshan is the school teacher 
Before him in the cartoon sits squatting on the floor, the only pupil in the class, holding a slate in his hands and wearing a school uniform of shirts and shorts. The pupil is Atal Bihari Vajpayee, the Prime Minister of India at the time, BJP Prime Minister. And the schoolboy Vajpayee asks the eminent teacher Sudarshan in this cartoon, what happened when Godse Ji went to the prayer meeting to protect Gandhiji? This was the cartoon. Shekhar Gupta, the then chief editor of Indian Express, is the source uh, for what I'm saying. He thought the cartoon, in his words, a bit vicious even by the standards of Unni's acid-dipped pen. Four years later, however, when Gupta was invited to dinner by Sudarshan, the RSS chief, the latter told him that though Godse had indeed gone with a pistol to Gandhi's prayer meeting, he had not pulled the trigger. Someone else had killed Gandhi, Gupta was told by Sudarshan, who added ominously that the man who benefited from the assassination was Jawaharlal Nehru, Gandhi's close colleague serving at the time as India's first prime minister. Now, this is what Shekhar Gupta uh, wrote on October 27, 2012. This is before the Modi government came to power. Whether Shekhar Gupta would now recall that, one does not know. Uh, Bob Dylan wrote, the times they are a changing, and they've changed some more after Unni drew his cartoon. So at that time, if the RSS was trying to claim that Godse did not indeed kill Gandhi, now many of them are saying, wonderful that Godse did kill Gandhi. In May this year, two statements were made by a woman charged with serious crimes, including an alleged terror attack. Uh, Pragya Thakur, an activist for Hindu nationalism and a BJP candidate for the Lok Sabha. In one statement, she said that Godse, who has assassinated Gandhi, is, was, and always will remain a patriot. In the other statement, she said that she was proud in 1992 to have climbed on top of a dome of the Babri Mosque and joined in demolishing the mosque. Along with most BJP candidates, Thakur won the election to parliament with a huge majority. 71 years after his death, it may be asked whether Gandhi's spirit, wherever it resides, is shocked and at praise for his assassination. In 1915, only some months after Gandhi had returned for good from South Africa to India, he was asked by a young man from Gujarat called Indulal Yagnik, who would then become an oft-critical critical Gandhi ally, he was asked by Yagnik whether he expected a following in India. This is what Gandhi said in his reply, which Yagnik later wrote in his book in 1943. Gandhi said, a following will come in due course, but I do anticipate that a time may come when my large following may throw me overboard on account of my strict adhesion to my principles. And it may be that I shall almost be turned out on the streets and have to beg for a piece of bread from door to door. But I think Gandhi will endure. He will endure, he's an idea, he's a spirit, he's a thought, disliked by oppressors, but resilient. Bullets cannot kill an idea, and maybe Gandhi's legacy will help us in our situation today. Now today, all over the world, we witness not just the rise of populist nationalists, but the growth in many nations of what has been called ethno-nationalist authoritarianism. No phrase is perfect or wholly adequate to describe what is happening, but this may be about as good 
as good as anything else to describe what has happened or has been reinforced in countries like, to name them in alphabetical order, Brazil, China, Hungary, India, Israel, Poland, Russia, Turkey, and the US, not an exhaustive list by any means. The phrase ethno-nationalist authoritarianism may be more candid than majoritarianism, more widely applicable than religious nationalism. When a racial, religious, or tribal group uses nationalism and state power to exercise coercion or discrimination against other groups, it may be seen as practicing ethno-nationalist authoritarianism. Other phrases may appeal more to others. It is the undemocratic coercion that we find offensive. Now, as for Gandhi's legacy, I would summarize it as follows. One, there is the weapon of satyagraha, nonviolent resistance against injustice, discrimination, or unfairness. Secondly, a defense of dissent. Thirdly, a stand against hatred. Fourthly, the belief that God is one and remains the same, whether called Ishwar, Allah, Khuda, God, Jehovah, Ram, Rahim, Karim, Krishna, or whatever. A fifth legacy was national, if also meaningful for the whole world, and that was an independent and democratic India, where in law, if not always on the ground, all had equal rights. Now, I'll try and say a few more things about how I understand his legacy. Now, Satyagraha, as he termed it in Hindi, means clinging to the truth. Gandhi translated the word variously, soul force, love force, truth force. I don't think Satyagraha can stop a Hitler, although at times Gandhi claimed unwisely, in my opinion, that it could. <coughs> Nonetheless, nonviolent defiance was a, quite a force in India from 1917 to 1947. Under Dr. King and his associates, it was quite a force in the US in the 1960s. Um, and Satyagraha, nonviolent defiance, was effective. It was superior to servile petitioning, which was the one way of Indians wanting something better in India. It was better than futile bomb throwing, which was also attempted by several. It was not effective. It resulted in terrible reprisals, but nonviolent defiance baffled the British and made a huge difference. Now, Gandhi's view of how and when a lethal weapon may be used is also of interest. There is a view, I think it's a misrepresentation, sometimes a deliberate misrepresentation, that Gandhi was an absolute pacifist. He was not. At a prayer meeting on 24 November 1947, Gandhi referred to the kirpan, this traditional Sikh sword, which over time had acquired a religious aura. This is what Gandhi said. A sacred thing has to be used on sacred and lawful occasions. A kirpan, he said, is undoubtedly a symbol of strength, which adorns the possessor only if he exercises amazing restraint over himself and uses it against enormous odds. Three weeks earlier, referring to Afridis from Pakistan's tribal areas who had raided Kashmir with the backing of Pakistan's government, Gandhi, who defended the military support the Indian government sent to Kashmir, had made a similar remark. He said that he would not ask the Afridis to give up their arms. They could keep the arms, he said, but only, quote, in order to protect the indigent, the women, and the children, unquote. Now, dissent in Gandhi. Uh, those of you who are familiar with 
his autobiography will know this. He spoke when he was a student in London between the age of 18 and 21. He joined the Vegetarian Society. He became an activist for that society. And one of, uh, or some of his colleagues at the time, or friends he met with, there was a man, doctor called Dr. Allenson, and there was an industrialist called Hills. Uh, now, Allenson, who was a doctor, he had written a book for married women propagating artificial birth control in the 1880s, and you can imagine how controversial this might have been. Uh, Hills was the head of the society, he didn't like it, and he wanted Allenson to be removed from the society for this uh, book. Uh, Gandhi was on the executive committee of this society. Uh, Gandhi uh, supported Hills's viewpoint. Gandhi at that point was, was not in favor of artificial birth control. But he, sa he said that Allenson was entitled to his dissenting view and that the exclusion, this is Gandhi's phrase, exclusion of anti-Puritans was not part of the declared objective of the vegetarian society. So there was voting and Gandhi was defeated. And Gandhi writes in the book that in the very first battle of this kind, I found myself siding with the losing party. Um, some years later, in 1906, Gandhi was then based in South Africa, but he made a visit to London to fight, to lobby with the, Indian, uh, with the government in London for Indian rights in South Africa. Uh, he was helped by Indian students in London uh, for his lobbying work, and by two young whites he had known in South Africa who had come to London to help him. Uh, one was a man called Louis Rich. He was now studying for the bar in London. The other man was, uh, was called Simmons, S-Y-M-O-N-D-S. We don't have his first name, as far as I know. He was a gifted 30-year-old who in Johannesburg had often, quote, this is Gandhi's words, often humorously assured Gandhi that he would withdraw his support if Gandhi ever was found to be in a majority. In London, Simmons, who would not die long afterwards, he died at a young age. He took down Gandhi's dictation, he typed letters, he wrote addresses, he affixed stamps, he posted envelopes. In Gandhi's words, Simmons toiled for us day and night without payment. Gandhi would write, and he would remember the sad parting beside the steamer on 1 December 1906. So uh, dissent was something that Gandhi was quite attached to. Uh, now, in 1936, four African-Americans, led by Harvard Thurman, the philosopher and educator, had met Gandhi in Western India in a place called Bardoli. They asked Gandhi why he spoke of non-violence rather than simply and beautifully of love. Gandhi's response was that non-violence suggested both love and a fighting spirit. Ten years later, in 1946 and 47, that fighting spirit took a menacing form. Hindus and Muslims were at one another's throats. Fighting back, Gandhi walked from place to place, imparting courage to victims, confronting aggressors with the truth about their ugly deeds. The victims were Hindus in Noakhali, now part of Bangladesh. They were Muslims in Bihar. The aggressors were Hindus in Bihar and Muslims in Noakhali. Meeting Gandhi in Kolkata, Calcutta, in the, in the summer of 1947, another African-American scholar visiting India, William Stuart Nelson, asked Gandhi why killings had occurred despite 30 years of teaching nonviolence. 
Gandhi's answer was that while many Indians had embraced his teaching of fear not, they had rejected his teaching of hate not. At first the white man was hated, then hate switched to Indians of the other religion. Following partition, when hating and killing spread in Punjab, to Punjab and multiplied to horrific levels, Gandhi gave similar answers to Indians who asked why seemingly peace-loving people had become unbelievably cruel. Many in the world greeted India's independence as a triumph of non-violence. However, Gandhi was aware of India's hospitality to violence. In a prayer meeting talk on 16th June 1947, two months before independence, he admitted that India had accepted his non-violent satyagraha not because violence was a horror, but because satyagraha seemed more effective than violence against the empire. Now these are Gandhi's words. No one at the time showed us how to make an atom bomb. Had we known how to make it, we would have considered annihilating the British with it. In their anger, Gandhi was saying, Indians, the we with whom he always identified himself even when they went against him, we might even have contemplated limitless violence with dissenters like Gandhi protesting with their lives. Frighten not and hate not are also important pieces of the Gandhi legacy. Now the song with which this evening began spoke of Gandhi's leadership of India's unusual and successful freedom movement. But in my opinion, greater than independence was Gandhi's feat in ensuring that newly independent India belonged equally to all who lived there, to its Hindus who comprised the great majority, to its Muslims who made up the largest single religious minority, to its Christians and Sikhs, its Buddhists and Jains, its tiny number of Jews and Zoroastrians, to its atheists and to everyone else. In 1947 and 48, when partition-related killings shamed the subcontinent, when Pakistan demanded as a Muslim homeland had become a reality, for India to become a Hindu state was a real possibility. With astonishing resolve and persistence, however, and with the support of Jawaharlal Nehru, Gandhi persuaded the Indian National Congress, the body that had led the freedom struggle and was now in power, to reiterate that free India would be based not on the majority race or the majority religion, it would belong to all. How overcoming op opposition obstacles, Gandhi secured this commitment, which before long was enshrined in the constitution architected by Dr. Ambedkar, is a story I've told elsewhere in more than one place. I won't retell the story this evening, but I want us to mark the remarkable fact that India emerged from partition-related carnage as a nation of all and for all. Such an India was what Gandhi seems to have envisioned from boyhood. Later, when he was 40, this is what he wrote in Hind Swaraj in 1909. The Hindus, the Muslims, the Parsis, the Christians who have made India their country are fellow countrymen, and they will have to live in unity if only for their own interest. In, continues Gandhi, in no part of the world are one nationality and one religion synonymous terms, nor has it ever been so in India. He continues, those who do not wish to misunderstand things may read up the Quran, and they will find therein hundreds of passages acceptable to the Hindus. And the Bhagavad Gita contains passages to which not a Muslim can take exception. Continues Gandhi, am I to dislike a Muslim because there are passages in the Quran I do not understand or like? 
end of quote. To Gandhi, India's Muslims had an equal right to India, even if in some cases their forebears had come from beyond India. For him, Muslim figures from history like Akbar, Shah Jahan, Aurangzeb, Dara Shuko, Haider Ali, Tipu, whether virtuous or not, whether tolerant or bigoted, were Indian. Similarly, until Pakistan was created, Jinnah was very much an Indian. Jews and Parsis were Indians. India's Christians were Indian. Eurasian Indians, or Anglo-Indians as they're called in India, were Indian too. Here is what Gandhi told the All India Congress Committee in November 47, two to three months before his death. You represent the vast ocean of Indian humanity. There are many places today where a Muslim cannot live in security. There are miscreants who kill him or will throw him out of a running train for no reason other than he's a Muslim. This is 47. 2019. Great difference. Conti uh, continued Gandhi then in November 47. Such things should never happen in India. We have to recognize that India does not belong to Hindus alone, nor does Pakistan to Muslims alone. Hinduism teaches us, he says, to return good for evil. The wicked sink under the weight of their own evil. Must we also sink with them? It is the basic creed of the Congress that India is the home of Muslims no, no less than of Hindus. Now, another Gandhi legacy, I mentioned it, but perhaps relevant for humanity as a whole, was his insistence that God was one even if people addressed him by different names. In June 1947, he said, when God is here, there and everywhere, God must be one. That is why I ask whether those calling God Rahim would have to leave India whether in the part described as Pakistan, Rama as the name of God would be forbidden? Would someone who called God Krishna be turned out of Pakistan? Whatever be the case there, they, this cannot be permitted here. We shall worship God both as Krishna and Kareem and show the world that we refuse to go mad. In India, what evokes Gandhi more than salt or the salt march? more than his bald head, his spectacles, his pocket watch, wockets, walking stick, even more than the spinning wheel, are four short words addressed to the Almighty. Ishwar Allah Terena. These four words are a powerful part of the Gandhi legacy. Gandhi knew that Indian society would not easily grant full rights to Muslims, Christians, or Dalits. On 21 November 47, he said at his prayer meeting, I'm told that the Roman Catholics are being harassed near Gurgaon. In a village called Kanhai, which is 25 miles away from Delhi, the Catholics were threatened that they would have to suffer if they did not leave the village. The freedom we have achieved does not imply the rule of Hindus in the Indian Union or the rule of Muslims in Pakistan. Two days later in, a, in prayer meeting remarks, which the radio and newspapers took to the whole country, he said, quote, it is a matter of shame for us that there are Jats and perhaps Ahirs too, these are dominant peasant castes, who feel that the Harijans, the phrase Gandhi used for the so-called untouchables, are their slaves. These untouchables may be given water and food, but they can get nothing by right. We feel we can even intimidate a judge if we are brought before him. The result is that the Harijans are ruined. On 14 January, about two weeks before he was killed, he said, Delhi is the capital of India. It is the heart of India. All Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs, Parsis, Christians, and Jews who people this country from Kanyakumari to Kashmir, from Karachi to Dibrugarh in Assam, have an equal right to it. 
Society, he added, is made up of individuals. If one man takes the initiative, others will follow, and one can become many. If there is not even one, there is nothing. On 18 January, Delhi's Hindus, Sikhs, and Muslims assured Gandhi that from now on, Hindus, Sikhs, and Muslims will live as brothers, and under no conditions and on no provocation will the residents of Delhi, including the refugees, become enemies of each other. After this assurance, Gandhi broke a fast he had commenced five days earlier. After sipping orange juice handed to him by Maulana Abul Kalam Azad, Gandhi said, we must pledge that once we have turned our face towards God, we shall never turn away. When that happens, India and Pakistan will unitedly be able to serve the world. India and Pakistan will unitedly be able to serve the world and make the world nobler. I do not wish to live for any other purpose. Twelve days after he said this, he was killed. But something quite remarkable happened thereafter. And for the following 56 years, in law, in the constitution, in the media, in schools, in colleges, in courts of law, in songs, in plays, in movies, the picture of an India for all and with equal protection for all was constantly presented and honored. Reality on the ground often clashed with this, but the picture was the norm. A victim could feel that leaders of society and the state were on her side. It was all too good to last. So finally in 2014, the norm took a big hit. Now in 2019, the norm is openly defied and disputed. Hindus should take their country back and run it. That's the new principle. Some in today's India would say, that a second-generation Indian-American should, of course, be running for the U.S. presidency. Yet Muslims whose forebears may have arrived in India 1,000 years ago must prove their loyalty to the Indian state month after month if they wish to vote. Uh, in this year's election campaign, Giriraj Singh, a union minister and BJP candidate from Begusarai in Bihar, referred to the popular cry, Vande Mataram, I bow before thee, Mother India, which Hindu nationalists often ask Muslims to raise as proof of their loyalty to India. Pointing out that as Hindus, his deceased relatives were cremated, they did not need graves, Giriraj Singh reminded Muslims, quote, you will need three arm lengths of land for your burial. Those who cannot say Vande Mataram, the nation will never forgive them. After his and his party's large electoral victory, Giriraj Singh was promoted to full cabinet rank. It was one of several indications that a great legacy connected to Gandhi, a democratic India that treated all as equal citizens, was being attacked. Gandhi remains a global symbol of defiance, a David against the world's Goliaths, a reminder of what one person armed with a sling of nonviolent resistance can do in the world. Outside the Houses of Parliament in London's Westminster, Londoners or visitors of different races can be found beside a Gandhi in bronze, which stands along with statues of Winston Churchill, Nelson Mandela, another South African, Jan Smuts, who, like Churchill, had jailed Gandhi, and for whom prisoner Gandhi had made a pair of leather sandals, a pair of leather sandals as a personal gift. Oxford offers a much smaller image of Gandhi. There is a small but intriguing Gandhi mural near a ceiling of the city's ancient church, St. Mary's, where I was invited to speak about Gandhi in June this year. 
This tiny mural evidently dates back to a visit Gandhi made to the historic church in 1931. This, uh, I see this as an image of Gandhi, the dissenter. Now, like the US, India was trying to raise an old nation on a relatively new idea of equality and inclusiveness, a nation beyond birth, race, and clan. In 1942, he made this speech when he, he made these remarks when he inaugurated the Quit India movement. Quote, if you want real freedom, you will have to come together and create true democracy. Democracy the like of which has not been so far witnessed. I have read a good deal about the French Revolution, said Gandhi. Pandit Jawaharlal Nehru has told me all about the Russian Revolution. But I hold that though theirs was a fight for the people, it was not a fight for real democracy, which I envisaged. My democracy means every man is his own master. Every woman is her own master, he would say today. 18 days before he was killed, he said that if India were to lose her soul, it would mean the loss of the hope of the aching, storm-tossed and hungry world, unquote. That India, for all, with a secular state and equal rights for people of all faiths or no faith, for people of all languages, castes and tribes, that India no longer exists. It existed for 70 years. That has gone. India has lost her soul. Now, the present Indian government tries to appropriate Gandhi. As I mentioned earlier, Gandhi who cleans the streets, that's the Gandhi that they celebrate. But uh, some people say, and I think there may be some truth in this, that the real aim is to use Gandhi to finish Gandhi. Um, now, what about the future? We don't know the future. Uh, I was mentioning earlier dinner to friends. A conversation I had, I think this was in the late 60s or 70s. Late 60s, I think. When uh, many uh, in the world were hoping that there would be changes in the Soviet Union, Solzhenitsyn and many other wonderful, amazing novelists from Russia had brought up the evidence of the cruelties there to the whole world's notice. And people were wondering about freedom of religion again, freedom of speech again. But one person, an expert on Soviet Union I met, met at the time, and with whom I was discussing this, he told me that it's the nationalities question that would result in the end of the Soviet Union. Not freedom of speech, not freedom of religion, nationalities question. He, he, he proved right. Uh, the Soviet Union did break. However, authoritarian rule has taken over Russia today. And this well-known Indian intellectual that some of you have read, Partho Chatterjee, who works in India but also in New York, he wrote recently that the greatest difficulty the present regime would have in India is on federalism, the relationship between center and the regions and the states. And of course, one incredible example of this is Kashmir. What's happened there? I've written about it, spoken about it. I won't uh, spend too much time on it, but you know what is happening there. Now the great question for all of us, how can India get out of this? 
Now there's no road map, as far as I know from history, to show how to slow down or reverse sort of events that have taken place in India. Of course, uh, all of us were stirred, you know, in those days when we read Solzhenitsyn, Mandelstam, Soviet dissidents. Um, so we have to see how, and, and I think those of you who are following events, there are, <coughs> although much of it, Indian media is now controlled or is completely, uh, what shall I say, uh, singing the tune that the government wants it to sing, but there are some online platforms, and you can get, uh, I'm sure you're getting some news from there. Um, so I often, uh, during the emergency, which also I had the privilege of opposing and fighting a long time ago, uh, often when I met people who were also fighting the emergency, uh, one of the things I tried to do was, all right, they come from another stream, they come from another stream, you didn't like what they said, what they did, but we're all in this together. Be a little nicer to one another. So this is one very important lesson for all of us who want to oppose this kind of oppression. Whatever may be our background, our different backgrounds, our, our, our quarrels in the past, our very deep passions against one another, we must now be nicer to one another, appreciate one another if we're all in this together. It's an obvious truth, a difficult truth, but I think something we have to remind ourselves of. Uh, we want everyone to agree with us on every single point, otherwise they're really some bad. It's not enough if they agree with us 60%, 80%. They must agree with us 99 or 100%. I think we could afford to change on that. Of course, we should share the news, any news, both the news of oppression and the news of fight. Uh, when, uh, during India's freedom movement, 1940, uh, Nehru and Vinoba Bhave, another extraordinary man, these two were arrested and Gandhi was instructed not to report their arrest in his newspaper. He said he will suspend his newspapers for the time being. And then he made this very interesting statement that every Indian can become a walking newspaper. If everyone conveys the news that he or she gets to the next person and the next person and the next person, then there will be no need for newspaper. So he was inventing the social media in 1940. So the walking newspaper. And then, where feasible, non-violent, non-cooperation of a realistic and strategic kind. You take Kashmir, for instance. Kashmir, the whole of Indian Jammu and Kashmir, has, I think, about 13 million people, one, three. The Kashmir Valley has about 7 million people. In Jammu and Kashmir as a whole, and perhaps most of it in, in the Kashmir Valley, there are more than half a million Indian soldiers. How many Americans were there in Afghanistan or Iraq at the maximum period of you know, American strength or NATO strength? So there are now now, the Indian, Indian state never gives out the figure. But so many people have written and, and, and assessed that it is half a million or more. 
in a population either of 13 million, if you think of all of Indian Jammu and Kashmir, or 7 million if you think only of the Kashmir Valley. Has there ever been a concentration of firepower like that? And so Kashmir has had a spe special status, special constitutional provision until the 5th of August. Uh, and the Indian government claims, I hope with truth, that no one has been killed in the last several weeks. How wonderful if this is true. It would also show how sensible and intelligent the people of Kashmir are. Why should they expose themselves to the guns? So non-violent, non-cooperation of a realistic and strategic kind is one way in which people can, co can combat oppression. Where feasible. Of course, easy to recommend, very hard to practice, but I think it should not be overlooked, this possibility. Nonviolent, non-cooperation of a realistic and strategic kind. Now, as I was again saying to friends at dinner time, during Stalin's time, during Hitler's time, there was the United States, there was the UK, there was many other countries, which they didn't all get their act together. They didn't do things as promptly as they might have done. But there was a powerful group of nations, governments as well as peoples, determined not to let Hitler take over the world, determined not to let Stalin take over the world. Is that the case today? If there is, if we feel that something like ethno-nationalist authoritarianism is spreading worldwide, how many nations and how many societies are committed now to reversing this trend? That's a question we have to ask. So what the US can do, what, the, what Canada can do, what the UK can do, what France, other countries, uh, I mentioned, these are only some examples, so many other countries, what they can do. These are very important questions that all of us have to figure out how we can uh, influence opinion in, in these places. Lastly, intellectuals. Again, I, I don't know why I want to go back to the dissidents of the Soviet Union time. But intellectuals who describe the truth and who speak out. They can do more than we think they can. So I'll end with that. Intellectuals, speak out. <laughs> <laughs> So yes, yes, questions, please. Comments, questions. There's a mic at the back. If you could just go back, since we are recording this. Hello. Yeah, thank you for your talk. It was very good. <laughs> um, you mentioned the walking newspaper thing, and yeah. it kind of had me thinking because. You said everyone can be their own newspaper. In India, that's kind of happened with WhatsApp, except it's all fake. <laughs> so I'm curious, what, did Gandhi have any views on freedom of the press, and what exactly did he say? Because it seems like it's gone in India now, with most of the media parroting the line of the state. Yeah, so uh, thank you for a great question. You, of course you're so right about that 
it's not only people of one kind or one view who can become walking newspapers, Every, everybody can. But I think there's great relevance in the notion those who have facts that they believe to be true, have facts that they believe to be important, it is their duty to share them, spread them as effectively as they can. I mean, Gandhi was absolutely committed to freedom of the press, from the beginning to the end, without any hesitation. Of course, he wanted journalists to be responsible, but he, he said far better for journalists to exercise their own control over themselves than for anyone outside to influence newspapers. He was totally and passionately committed to freedom of the press. And, and of course, he was passionately committed to the truth as he saw it and to conveying it. So if we keep those things in our minds and hearts, whoever we are, however young or old we are, wherever we are, that whether it is India, whether it's any other part of the world, if something is wrong, something is oppressive, something is unfair, let us say it, let us spread it uh, as, as faithfully as we can. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Gandhi, I'd like to know if what your attitude is, how many in India espouse Gandhian values uh, in the country? Is it something like the peace movement in the United States, peace and justice? It's a small minority of people, although there's a difference now since our not well brother Donald Trump has become president. We have people coming out of the woodwork that are supportive of all kinds of rights that are being you know, uh, under attack today. Indigenous rights, uh, immigrant rights, women's rights, uh, um, and so on. So more people are rising up now with all kinds of movements in the environmental yes. rights probably is, is the biggest coalescing thing sure. now. So it's different now than it was two years ago. In America, but uh, what is the sense of how strong the Gandhi philosophy and you might say movement is in India? Well, it's very hard to estimate. You know, very hard now to take account. I think it's perfect. I told you that this person who praised Gandhi's assassin won a huge victory. Uh, so we we need not assume that the Gandhi idea has great majority support, but. Did Gandhi ever believe that it was, it was the majority that was going to gain anything? He believed in, the, in his fight. All he could control was his commitment, his passion, his fire. If others came along, wonderful. If they did not come along, never mind. So the, that very question is the wrong question to ask. How many are there? The question to ask is, how can I pass on my deepest conviction to as many people as I can. Thank you. Yeah. My question was, 
we see a lot of these different changes in India today, but how much of it is not n just of the Kashmir Valley as we talk about currently, but also of you know a lot of the fallings from you know Tibet and China encroaching into the trade road and going through Sri Lanka, gaining ports there, and trying to wait through Pakistan and buying Indian land from Pakistan and things like that. I mean, it's just part of the thing in the news that is there, but how much of it is really being, you know, triggered by that in the Kashmir Valley? So, so if I understand your question or your suggestion, something like this, that China is doing some China has some designs, not, not, not nice designs, bad designs. Uh, Pakistan has some bad designs. And China and Pakistan together are doing things that are unhelpful for that region. And could what India be doing in Kashmir be a response to that? Is that roughly it? Okay. So uh, I absolutely agree that China does not have wonderfully noble designs. China has done in Tibet what India is doing in Kashmir. Right. China has done in Xinjiang what India is now doing in Kashmir. So, you know, the thing about, uh, so, so I, and I, when I named the countries that are witnessing either ethno-nationalism, authoritarianism in a new form or in an enhanced form, I mentioned China very much as Xi Jinping wants his name to be in the constitution of, oh, it is already there in the constitution of China. So, and, and we know about the military rule in Pakistan. But whatever the wrongs of China, and there are many, whatever the wrongs of Pakistan, and there are many, can you justify changing the status of 13 million or 8 million people without consulting any one of them. Not one. I don't think you can. You know, if today, as I've said, it's written, if today the Chinese government announces that the name of the Tibetan region, which is now called Tibetan Autonomous Region, TAR, is changed overnight to the proud Chinese territory of Tibet, without consulting anyone in Tibet. The Chinese, many Chinese might love it. Now, I, I should mention this, that India's move in Kashmir has been widely welcomed in all parts of India. No doubt about it. But it would be like what I have said. So, just as Tibetans have rights, Kashmiris are individuals, they're human beings, they're men, women, and children with inalienable rights. And among these rights is to be consulted as to their own future. So India has to face this. Every Indian has to face this. Um, so this is, this is one way in which I would, I would, I would respond to this. And so, uh, inc incidentally, I think we should also recognize that what 
of course, now, ha have the Kashmiri Muslims done, uh, done always good things? No. The Kashmiri Pandits, the Brahmins who were expelled from, or who, were, who either left Kashmir or were pushed out of Kashmir, that was a terrible, terribly bad thing. Of course. But does that mean, does that entitle the people of India or the government of India to do anything as they want with Kashmir? That's the question we have to ask. Um, and not just, and with one another. In other parts of India. Supposing uh, uh, the government of Kerala does something that the, the people in other parts of India don't like. Supposing the people and the government of Tamil Nadu do things that the government of India does not like. Will the people of India, will the government of India have the authority to do what they want without consulting them? We have to ask this. Are we prepared to give one another the, uh, the, at the very least, the right to be consulted when their own future is at stake? Really? No, but, but you're quite right that supposing that there had been no violence in Kashmir, supposing the bandits had not been expelled, maybe the rest of India would not have be become so anti-Kashmiri. Yes. No. Pulwama was, yes, there was a horrible uh, uh, incident where 40 plus people, so soldiers were killed because uh, somebody who claimed that he was on behalf of this terrorist organization committed a, a suicide attack. Yes, but, uh, you know, uh, say 9-11 happened, 9-11 happened. Would the United States, therefore, be justified in obliterating Afghanistan, Iraq? So many people were so unhappy about so many aspects of US policy, despite 9-11. <coughs> so even when horrible, horrible things are done, uh, civilized societies act in a certain way, and they do not act in some other ways. You mean Saddam Hussein committed no, nothing wrong? No, Saddam Hussein might have, but he might have. He did. Yeah. He was contained. The U.S. wanted to invade Iraq. It is. Wait. Iraq. Okay. Okay. You said Saddam Hussein was contained. Then U.S. invaded Iraq. Kashmir has been comparatively very peaceful. So what was the provocation? You you say that Saddam Hussein despite all the horrible things he did, did not justify. No, but you were saying that the US acted very civilizedly and it no, didn't. No, I, did, I did not say that. Okay. So I, I only said there's a civilized way. I said that many people opposed US's uh, actions in, both in Afghanistan and in Iraq. No, I did not so. Uh, 
the US does also many wrong things. Very many wrong things. Very many wrong things. But so does India. So do so not only the Indian state, but even Indian society. In my humble opinion. Please. Pause too much, but there's a, there, there's a difference between the how and the objective, the final objective of getting Kashmir, JNK to be another state of India versus having its kind of autonomous status. Do you, are you opposed to the way this was done or are you opposed to the objective in itself? I'm opposed, I will be happy with either, provided the Kashmiris are part of the decision making. Why should, it, why should the rest of India, let us assume that Kashmiris don't call themselves part of, most of them, they don't call themselves Indians, but let us assume that we think they are Indians. All right, but should we have the right to decide without consulting the Kashmiri people? Maybe they should be like any other part of India. Maybe they should have autonomous state. Remember this, the Kashmiris became part of India on the basis of a solemn pledge. First, the pledge was that we will have a plebiscite. Then the pledge was, we will give you special status. Put yourself in, in the Kashmiri position. And, and remember this also, oh, by the way, this you must have all known. You know, the Kashmir was locked down, no communication. Even now there is some resumption, but still an amazing lack of communication. Within a few days after this lockdown, Mr. Prakash Javdekar, the Minister of Information and Broadcasting, he was talking about the usefulness of radio broadcasts. After the Kashmir thing had happened, then he made a public speech saying, the worst punishment you can give to somebody is not to allow themselves to express themselves or communicate with their neighbors. The worst punishment you can give. Many people welcomed the Kashmir lockdown because it was a punishment to the Kashmir. No, they thought that they deserve it. They deserve this. So, as long. I agree with you, a case can indeed be made that if Kashmir is to be part of India willy-nilly, better to be like any other state than to be a special status. But there has to be some consultation with Kashmiris. Some Kashmiris, can it be imposed on millions and millions of people like that? In my opinion, not. Yes. Um, I want to leave a comment to answer the question was asked. Very long. Um, so when um, I think someone asked you about the relevance of Gandhi in India, um, and recently I was in Chhattisgarh and I actually saw that there's a movement in name of Gandhi that has started, and it's called the Coal Satyagraha. Um, and there are uh, 54 villages who have uh, come around to saying that we are not going to give up land uh, to the mining 
corporates and they are successfully running it and um, they started it on the 2nd of October uh, where the villages came together and um, they are sustaining the movement over almost a decade. So I think at least in parts, people still find uh, Gandhi relevant and use him both as a symbol um, and also find a lot of resilience because it's a very difficult fight to fight against the state and the um, mining barons. But like for 54 villages is not a small number. So I think in parts of India, he's still quite relevant. Well, thank you very much. And uh, here, this uh, also allows me to point out that some of you may have read this after the Kashmir thing. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm again returning to Kashmir despite your taking us to other parts. Uh, several individuals who identify themselves as belonging to what they call the Gandhian fraternity, various Gandhi organizations, all issued a very strong statement expressing their very deep unhappiness at the what had happened, the, the with, uh, abrupt withdrawal of 370 in 35A. Just something to, for us to know. Can I add a comment? Please. One of the things that we, people like me who grew up, you know, during the emergency, and yeah. that time in India, I think the struggle we have is Gandhi is an idol and symbol for us. There's no doubt about it. We believe in the Gandhian idol, uh, uh, idealistic views, but we also are trying to balance that with the real politic of the time. And I think it's, I, it would be wrong to say that people pay, pay lip service to Gandhi in India. I think there is a genuine uh, appreciation, feeling, respect for Gandhi. Um, I think the issue has become that in today's modern world, how do you balance that with everything that's happening globally? And I, can, I don't know of any in, uh, Hindu Indian who would not be supportive of what's happening in Jammu and Kashmir today, barring a very small minority, honestly. And that showed up in the elections this time, right? I mean, the Congress I got wiped out. There's a reason for that, and there's a reason for why people think the way they do. And I don't think it automatically translates into um, uh, that, that the minorities have no rights. I kind of disagree with that point of view. I think uh, Hindu-Muslim riots have happened regardless of which government has been in power for the last 40, 50 years. Right, but they've been contained. Um, so I, I, I don't think it's, an, it's a total erosion. I wouldn't compare it with nat nationalistic movements across the world. I don't think they're all the same. I don't think India and China can be compared. I don't think Modi and, um, you know, pick maybe the Hungarian president or Venezuelan president can be compared. I don't think Modi can be compared with Trump. I think there's a big difference. So uh, we see that nuance, uh, but I think it's a struggle. That's all I, I will say. Thank you, thank you, thank you at least for, no, I, I, I appreciate what you say. <coughs> I, 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 would, I would only maybe make, make, make this uh, comment, if I'm allowed, that A, uh, you know that these lynchings and so forth, uh, not a single person involved in the lynching has so far been. All the accused have been acquitted. Every single person accused has been acquitted. And those attacked and their relatives, they are still being pursued for alleged offenses. 
So uh, when you say, so this is also to keep, to keep I, I absolutely agree with you that India is not nearly as authoritarian as, as China, absolutely not. But the trend in India is, in my opinion, in the wrong direction. And there, is, there are these very unfortunate ways in which the judiciary, the civil service, the universities are being silenced. And people are being, hung, you know, I'm not saying that Chidambaram and his son or this DK Shivkumar in Karnataka committed nothing wrong. But as if Yadurappa has had no corruption charges, I mean, this absolute focus and persecution of some individuals, relentless persecution, is not, is not pleasant. It's, and people in India are extremely troubled by, by all this. Finally, on whether Indians supported, support the Kashmir so strongly, yes, at the moment they seem to, India's. But remember, <coughs> there was a time when the vast majority of caste Hindus were in favor of untouchability. There was a time when the vast majority of American whites were in favor of slavery. So the majority opinion has, the fact that there is a majority has some value, but it doesn't have lasting value. Well, now I know you're an open person and will happily talk to people even after the formalities end, but uh, I wanted to thank you again for coming back. and for a very provocative uh, and interesting talk. So thank you, and thank all of you for coming. And the 24th, we get to hear Professor Ayub. Thank you. Thank you.